0: good morning thank you thank you you can have a seat thank you so much everybody i appreciate that thank you pastor ashley and jay man i love our church i love the community that we have here this body of believers that says man i just love jesus so much and i love what he loves i care about what he cares about let's serve people together man i'm so excited to bring to you what jesus is speaking to us this morning uh, my name is Noah, and I am honored to, to be here, to be speaking to you. Um, anytime I get to talk to people at Hope Church, I love to take the opportunity to honor our pastors. There is something to the blessings of being in a church pastored by people of God who make decisions integrally and to being in a covering of authority to say like I submit myself to this pastor to this leadership to this house to this vision I will invest myself here with these leaders with these pastors and see God change lives in me and through me and through this house so can we just take a minute to honor Pastor Ashley and Pastor Dave today come on they are incredible leaders, straight from God, and we are so blessed to have them. Um, I am feeling a little bit under the weather today. I think the cold and the warm, and the cold is messing with me. so if I sound a little funny i 'm okay, I just it's just in my voice so um, also, it is actually Pastor Appreciation Month. And if you didn't know and you have it in your heart to appreciate our pastors, it's so good to honor our pastors. They sow so much life into us, they speak so much into our lives and to help us. And it's not because they're superhuman and there's anything uh, special about them, particularly. It's just that they said yes to Jesus and they bring his word to us and they help us grow. And the Bible talks about blessing and honoring the people that give you life. So if it's in your heart to show appreciation to them, if you appreciate our pastors, Do something to appreciate them today. I'm not a pastor, so I would say appreciate our pastors. Um, And I am not who I am without the leadership of Pastor Dave and Pastor Ashley in my life and how they invest in me. And there's actually a lot of people here at Hope Church that make me who I am today. I've been coming here my whole life. Uh, My parents started coming with my older brother and sister, and then they started coming to Hope Church. I was born, so I've been here my whole life. I went through Hope Kids, I went to Hope Youth, I went to Hope Christian Academy from kindergarten through eighth grade. And all of the people at all of those places, the truths of God word, have made me who I am today and I honor everybody that came before me and invested in me, they believed in me, they developed me, they trusted me, and they loved me into serving Jesus with my whole life. And I encourage you, bring your kids, bring your families to this place and be planted in the Lord. There's something so powerful about faithful people like that who have invested in me, who have planted in this place since before I was here, and that they now get to see the fruit of what Jesus is doing in this place. All of their prayers, all of their investment. It's incredible the faithfulness of faithful people seeing God bring fruit to this place. Stay planted, people of hope. Our root series was all about being planted in God's ways and in a community of believers. Stay planted long enough to see your fruit grow. You will not regret it. And Jesus will bring fruit from your investment. So I honor everybody who invested into me. Thank you so much. Well, this morning we are talking about urban legends. We are in week two of urban legends. And uh, I have a little bit of a legend for you. You've probably heard of it before. There was a book published in 1955 called The Sherpa and the Snowmen. And uh, it talks about this monster that lived way in the Himalaya Mountains, and it outwitted all their hunters. It lived alone, and sometimes it was in the trees. Sometimes it was walking around on two feet. It was bigger and scarier than a monkey, and their, their archers could never get to it. And as the people populated and the forest grew smaller, and it got surrounded, it just somehow disappeared and went somewhere else. The book says, Many people say that they are still to be found in the mountains of Nepal, away to the west, where the Sherpa people call them, The Yeti. Everybody's heard of the Yeti before, right? My in-laws actually live in Nepal, and they've never seen a Yeti before, so they are probably watching the live stream right now, though, so hey, David and Cynthia. Uh, Yeti. Urban legends. It's amazing how there's so much evidence of them, yet they always seem to evade being captured. There's so much out there that says, yeah, I've seen them, or my friend saw them, or my friend's uncle's mother's brother saw one, one time in a blizzard. And uh, Alexander the Great actually conquered the Indus Valley. And he said to the people that he conquered, he said, show me a Yeti, I've heard about the urban legend. And they said, well, we can't take you up to see them because it's too high. And even if we could get up there, we couldn't bring it down, it would never be able to survive the change in altitude. So it seems like the only thing more impossible than a Yeti actually, existing would be like real concrete evidence of a yeti or being captured and shown to us like it 's just impossible, but people cling to their stories, and there are maybe still people who say i 've seen a yeti or they exist right because it 's what we 've always heard their grandparents told them a story that their grandparents told them that their friend told them, and any evidence to the contrary that say, like, this is irrefutable evidence, yeti could not exist, we, we would have seen one by now, we would have a better picture by now, right? They're always just dismissed because that's all we've always known. And we do the same thing with God. That's our series, Urban Legends, what have you heard about God that you've just always heard? And it seems good, that's what you heard growing up, it makes sense to us, and so we just believe it as an urban legend, and we're taking a look at some of those, this series, to bust those myths and to say, who is Jesus really? And today I wanna to look at an urban legend that's called the, the curse of the unpardonable sin. The curse of the unpardonable sin. Say unpardonable, it is a tongue twister. It's un, The unpardonable sin is a sin so terrible that you could never be forgiven. We all know there are forgiveness of sins, but the unpardonable sin is one that is so bad, so evil, that God could never turn his face and look at you again And sin is just missing the mark. It's just a mistake. We're humans. We aren't perfect. And so it's something that you've done that's so bad that God can never forgive it or pardon it. Right? This is the curse of the unpardonable sin. And I think this legend is actually kind of second nature to us. I think to some degree we all kind of believe it without even realizing that it's there. Because it's always what we've heard and it's how we grow up. And as people relating to God, it makes sense to us. But before we investigate the legend, before we dive into the curse, I want to take a look at and establish what we do know. What is the truth that we can come back to to compare? What is the evidence of this urban legend? And what is the truth that we know about who God is? And the simple truth that we're going to compare this legend to today is the truth that God wants relationship with you. And that God likes you, he loves you, and he wants to relate to you. Ephesians 5 is a chapter that's all about relationships with people, And these verses stand out here. Ephesians 5.1, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you, people of hope, period. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him, relate to him, and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ does it. His love was not cautious but extravagant. I love that. He's not holding anything back. He's not protecting himself. He's extravagant in his love. And he didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything to us. Love like that. It's so good. He wants to be in relationship with us, to know us, for us to know him, for us to talk to him, for him to talk to us. He already loves us. He just wants us to love him back and to spend time with him. That's the truth. That's a simple foundation. And if you really believe it, if you really get it, and you change how you look through this lens, it will change a lot about how you see God. And I love the way that Pastor Ashley preached about the prodigal son at Impact Night a few weeks ago. Uh, it's the story of a son that took his inheritance from his father. He took all his money. He ran away from home. He blew all of his money, so he was poor. And then uh, he was hungry, and he was starving. And he decided, I'm going to go back to my father's house because I'm starving and I'm out of money. And I know my, his servants, his employees, they eat better than I'm eating right now. And maybe... Out of the goodness of his heart, he'll give me a job, and then I'll be able to not starve to death. So his father, when he saw him coming, ran to him, and he knew it wasn't because he loved him or because he had seen his mistakes, but it was because he was out of money and he was out of food and he was out of options that he came home. But the father didn't care why the son came home. He just cared that he was home and that they were in relationship together again. It's that kind of unconditional love that God says, I want to be in relationship with you. And that's God. That's all He wants, relationship with us. And that's why He created us, to be in relationship. So if He is perfect and He can't be around imperfection, He can't be around sin. Sin is making mistakes, sin is missing the mark. Sin separates us from God. And that's why He doesn't like it, just because it separates from us. us from him and it hurts us and he loves us and he wants to be near us right so he sent a solution he sent a savior he said there's a problem we are separated i want to be together again here is a solution to the sin problem and anything that tries to separate us from that relationship or stop us from receiving that love that's an urban legend and it's good to recognize the truth The truth is that God wants relationship with us so that anytime we see evidence of a grainy picture of a story that we're hearing that sounds like an urban legend, we can say that is an urban legend because that's trying to separate me from the relationship with my father. And anything that tears apart that relationship is the mission of the enemy. God's only goal is to be in relationship with us. So his enemy, our enemy, is to take us away from that relationship. Hebrews 8 says... They will all get to know me firsthand. That's us and God. The little and the big, the small and the great, they'll get to know me by being kindly forgiven and the slate of their sins forever wiped clean. I love that. Anything contrary to that is God's enemy. It's an urban legend and it's a lie. The simple truth about God is that he so loved the world, everyone, that he gave extravagantly, not cautiously in protecting himself, but abundantly so that we could be free and be in relationship with him sin causes death but now we can relate to jesus so when i was a kid i believed in urban legend i uh, want to tell you a story about it it's really similar to the urban legend that we're talking about today to the lies that we were talking about and it starts from 1 corinthians 11:27. this is kind of the verse that the urban legend was based on therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the lord in an unworthy manner talking about communion in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now this wasn't something that I was taught here in this church necessarily, but it was something I think probably someone had just said somewhere in passing, you know, like an urban legend, you know this verse, and here's the legend, and no ill will intended but definitely something that impacted me as a kid and an urban legend, hearing it and walking it and not knowing for myself who Jesus really was. And the teaching around this is the unconfessed sin and being guilty of the body and of the blood and this part examining himself. So everybody taking communion, it says, should examine himself. Because Paul is saying in this chapter, he says to the Corinthian church, you know, people are getting sick. They're dying early deaths because of the way that they're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord because of the way they are taking communion. So as a kid with a guilty conscience, I was terrified of this verse. I didn't really know what was going on. But Paul's talking about people dying and getting sick, and it all comes from communion. So I'm thinking it's better not to take communion at all. It's just bread and juice. We do that all the time, but here it seems really dangerous. I'm not really sure why we take it but I definitely know that I don't want whatever happened to those people to happen to me. So instead of going up with the rest of the congregation and having my bread cube and my juice drink, I ran downstairs to the basement of the church, and I cried about my sins all alone by myself in a dark room. I was so alone and full of shame for what I had definitely probably done. I wasn't sure what, but probably there was something there that God was angry about, and I couldn't do communion with the rest of the church and we laugh about it. It's absurd. It's it's funny. I was a little kid, but at the same time, it's sad because we all believe this to an extent. We believe that yes, God wants a relationship with me, but at the same time, there's this one thing that we can't really have it all the way. There's something holding me back or always in the back of my mind that says, "Yes, he loves me so much, but at the same time, Not all the way, because of what I have done and something that holds me back. So maybe you've heard a verse or a teaching or an urban legend like this, or you're thinking of something in your mind. And for this urban legend, I think there's three things that you can do. It kind of relates to a lot of other urban legends and the decisions that we have when we hear the truth and this evidence of some other legend. The first thing is you you could just not risk it. You know, you could do like I did and run downstairs and just run away. So no communion, no risk. I'm not going to die like the people in the Corinthian church. right? Or the second thing you could do is you could just, on your way from your, to your chair to the, the bread, because we, we got up and we walked down to, to get it ourselves, I just, you could confess all of your sins. Roll the dice, look around. How many people are dropping dead? Maybe I'll be okay. What are the odds that it's happening to somebody else or just to me? Or the third thing you could do, is you can look at the context of this verse. This is just one verse in a whole chapter, in a whole book, in the whole Bible. And context is a powerful tool because you read the whole chapter and you look at who is the author speaking to? What is the culture around the time? What's the context of this uh, particular event? What's happening? And what is he really trying to say? And we all know that meanings can be manipulated when things are taken out of context like this message. Don't take my word for it. Every verse I'm talking about, take it home, study it for yourselves. It's a powerful tool that as you look at the context, it can show you the heart of Jesus and who he really is. It's actually a lot of fun to say, you know, this little thing I was actually believed was an urban legend, but God is way better than I thought he was. It's so much fun. It's cool. So look at the context. Study around every message you hear. Or Context can also be ignored. So we know there's context is powerful or context, things can be taken out of context and used to justify our own agendas. Like back in the Civil War, there were verses in the Bible people took out of context to justify slavery. There are verses in the Bible people take out of context to justify saying women cannot be in leadership at church. There are verses taken out of context that say God hates these people for loving those people, but you can't tell me that the God who died for humans could ever advocate... (laughs) for treating any person less than anyone else for any reason. It just doesn't make sense. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we give up on him, he does not give up on us, for there is no way he can be false to himself. And I love that. He can't be false to himself. How can he love people so much that he would die for them and throw people away at the same time? So, when someone takes a verse out of context and says, you know, slavery is okay, it's a civil war, you say, how can he love people but also throw them away and treat them as less than people? It doesn't make sense. He cannot be false to himself. And I'm so thankful for a God who is true to himself. I'm so thankful that he never changes from yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. I'm so thankful for leaders. Pastors who look at the heart of what God is saying, who look at the context, who study for themselves and make integral decisions based in the truth of God's Word and what He's saying to us. I'm so thankful for a pastor like Pastor Ashley, who preaches so many verses every Sunday. She uses the Word of God, not her ideas, to speak the truth to us, and how she is leading this church. She's an amazing leader, and she is leading us into reaching people. I'm so thankful for her. The heart behind the verses. so can you. It's it's really not hard, and it's not just for pastors or for speakers. Anybody can do it. Just take a verse that you heard that you liked. Go look at the whole chapter. Read what else it's saying to you. Discover that he's better than you think he is. It's a lot of fun. So back to the context of communion in the Corinthian church, where Paul is talking to them, and he's giving them this warning. They would have this tradition where they would all gather together. The whole church would come together, and they would have this big dinner. And this is the cultural context. They'd have this big dinner. At the end of it, they would have communion. And some of the people during the dinner, they would be so hungry, they would just eat faster than anybody else. They would eat way more than their share or that they could fit in their bellies. And then some people, because of their selfishness, had nothing to eat. And then others, instead of, you know, the tiny communion sip of wine, they would take like a communion bottle of wine, and they were having to be carried out of the dinner. And Paul was so shocked to find out that he gave them this warning. He says, you should take communion. Communion is good. But examine the way in which you take it. Not the state of your sins, but the manner in which you're eating. And whether or not you're being considerate of the people around you in your community, or if you're being so selfish that other people aren't eating at all. And it's surprising to Paul because of this establishing truth that God wants relationship with you. He wants to be in community with you. What did Jesus do at the very end of his life with his 12 disciples, his 12 best friends in the whole world? He sat down with them at a table and he ate. He had communion with them. He had the the bread and the wine and they had communion, which communion means community. You can see those words are kind of closely related, right? It also means intimacy. It's a relationship word. So as a kid crying in the basement, not having communion, I was separated And alone and isolated from being in relationship with God and relationship with people I wasn't in any community I was in isolation it's a lie meant to trick me into thinking that I wasn't good enough that I couldn't have relationship with Jesus because of what I had done and focused on myself and it's all very similar to this urban legend that we're talking about today the curse of the unpardonable sin so let's take a look at this curse it starts in Matthew 12 32 which said, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Another translation says, those who blaspheme God's Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Seems pretty cut and dry, right? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is kind of labeled as the unpardonable sin. Blaspheming being like saying anything against the Holy Spirit or saying anything wrong, and it seemed like a lot of people think if I something wrong or i said something wrong against the holy spirit maybe i had a really bad day and i shook my fist at heaven and i said some things i regret am i guilty of the unpardonable sin does that put me in this bucket that says there's no forgiveness whether i did it on purpose or on accident am i doomed to hell for eternity because of something that just slipped out of my tongue against the holy spirit It can hold a lot of people in a lot of fear and we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this legend specifically Because with the context of this whole chapter, it's really easy to see how God's truth is not false to itself. In verse 22, and in the message translation, which I love because it talks like we talk and it's really easy to understand, it says, Next, a poor demon-afflicted wretch, blind and deaf, was sat down before him. Jesus healed him. He gave him his sight and his hearing, and the people who saw it were impressed. This has to be the son of David, they said. I love this because it's just Jesus doing what he does. He's in relationship with people. He's seeing their needs. He's filling them. He's loving them. He's taking care of them. In verse 24, it says, But the Pharisees, when they heard the report, were cynical. Black magic, they said. Some devil trick he's pulled from his sleeve. And the Pharisees, these were the perfect Bible uh, scholars. They were self-righteous. Everybody knew that they knew all the right answers, and they always did everything right, and they never messed anything up, and they were the goody-two-shoes, perfect people in the church. These are the Pharisees, and they are cynical of Jesus. Black magic, they called it. So in verse 25, Jesus confronts their slander. A judge who gives opposite verdicts on the same person cancels himself out. A family that's in constant squabble disintegrates. If Satan banishes Satan, is there any Satan left? This is war, he says. There is no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. I love this because it goes back to that simple truth that God wants relationship with us and anything that opposes that relationship is his enemy. And forgiveness is for one thing. Forgiveness is for that we can be in relationship with Jesus. Without forgiveness, we can't because we're imperfect. But with it, we can receive his love. In verse 31, it says, there is nothing done or said that can't be forgiven, period. But if you deliberately persist in your slanders against God's spirit, you're repudiating the very one who forgives. If you reject the Son of Man out of some misunderstanding, the Holy Spirit can forgive you. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own perversity all connection with the one who forgives. And this is the key right here. You're severing connection, which sounds a lot like relationship. What happens if you cut the branch you're sitting on? You fall away from the tree to the ground. You hurt yourself. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, rest in me, be connected to me, receive from me, and produce fruit because of me. If our only hope is to receive forgiveness, then how can we not receive by not receiving, right? The unpardonable sin is simply choosing not to believe that Jesus has forgiven our sins, It's choosing to believe that our sin and what we have done is stronger than his blood and what he has done for us. It's choosing to believe that what he's done isn't enough. And the only way to disqualify ourselves is to say, I disqualify myself. And that's really good news because it takes a big, carried curse of the unpardonable sin and it makes it this guaranteed gift that's so easy to get. All you have to do is say, yes, thank you, I receive it. That's it. And if you're worried... Come on, it is really good news. Let me say, if you're worried that maybe you, can, you committed the unpardonable sin, that you are unforgiven, you have not. You've not committed the unpardonable sin because the fact that you care and that you want to be in relationship with Jesus says that you haven't. It's an urban legend. It's designed to get you to focus on your sins and your shortcomings and what you can't and how you could never be in relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, by ourselves, we, we really can't be in relationship with God, not without Jesus. And that's the good news, because he did come and he did solve that problem. So now all we have to do is receive his gift. Boom, the curse is lifted. So that was easy, the unparable sin, right? Myth busted. Thank you, Jesus. What else can we take a look at? How about sins that we committed on purpose or unconfessed sins? Sins that are in our hearts that we did that we never told Jesus about and said, please forgive me, right? Hebrews ten twelve says, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It is a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. Are there any imperfect people in the house today? By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. In verse 18, it says, he concludes, I will forever wipe clean the slate of their sins. Once sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. That's it past, present, and future sins taken care of. If you sin tomorrow, Jesus doesn't need to get back up on the cross and crucify himself again to pay for what you did tomorrow. It's finished. He says it is finished. And that includes the guilt too, right? Because the guilt is just a focus on the act of what you did that is paid for already. And the more you focus on your own actions the less you focused on the one who paid for those consequences. And the point of him paying for those consequences is that you would stop focusing on them in the first place and focus on him so you could be in relationship with him. Payment, his payment, what he did is stronger than guilt, people of hope. Stop trying to pay for your sins by feeling your guilt. Guilt is like Linus's dirty blanket. It follows him around. It brings him comfort, but it's dirty and it's gross and it's not meant to be carried and it's time to get rid of it and to receive the love and the freedom that Jesus has for us. Don't let it steal from you. It is not your normal. Guilt is not your friend. Trust the power and the payment of Jesus even if it doesn't make sense. It's called faith. Believe it. All sins, past, present, and future, taken care of, a perfect sacrifice by a perfect man to pay for imperfect people, and that's what it takes, and that's what he did. Legend defeated. There it is. There's the evidence. So do we need to confess every single sin to Jesus, the unconfessed sin? Some people think, maybe there's some unconfessed sin in my heart. Like, uh, on my deathbed, I need to confess everything I've ever done wrong just in case I didn't say it to Jesus and say, please forgive this sin. I'm sorry. Well, Jesus forgave unconfessed sin all the time. There was a paralyzed man that got brought to Jesus. He said, I forgive your sins. Now get up and walk. There's a woman in adultery. She was caught in the act. She was brought to Jesus to be stoned. And he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Sin's forgiven. And then he never talked about her sins again. He didn't announce what she had done to the whole town. He didn't track down her husband and tell him what she had done. He didn't accuse her or even talk to her about her sin like, you know what you did was wrong, you know, are you sorry, right? He didn't do any of that. And the Pharisees would scoff, well, we need to teach her a lesson. We need to hold her accountable. We need to make sure she, what she, she knows what she did was wrong. And we need to do something so that she sins less because she's a sinner. We caught her in the act. But Jesus does the opposite of that. He, he actually told her accusers to shut up and go away. He said, you who are perfect, you can throw the first stone at her and stone her to death. He said, shut up and go away. Not because she wasn't guilty, but because he wanted to help her. And he said, go and sin no more. And how can you tell someone to go and sin no more? Because he was setting her free. He wasn't giving her a command, like you're a sinful person, now stop it and go be free, you're welcome. He's saying, I am setting you free from sin you are free now to go and sin no more. And he took our guilt and our shame and our sin, and he said, go and sin no more because you don't have to anymore because you're free from that sin. You have the ability to not go and sin no more. And some people read this verse in 1 John 1:9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And they think that's the proof There it is that we have to confess every single one of our sins to Jesus. Every time we mess up, we say, Jesus, I sinned, would you please forgive me of this sin? I did it wrong. Again, let's look at the context, people of hope. 1 John 1, starting in verse 6, a few verses back says, if we claim that we experience a shared life with him, being Jesus, and we continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another. As the sacrifice blood of Jesus, God's Son purges all our sin. If we claim that we're free of sin, we're, not, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, simply come clean about them. He won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God. We make a liar out of him. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of sin. So if we walk in the light, and God is the light, we're walking in relationship with him. So we're really talking about, when he's talking about confessing your sins, or about not confessing your sins, is living in this facade that says, I'm a perfect person. I'm like a Pharisee. I never do anything wrong. I know all the verses. I'm a perfect person, and I make no mistakes. And if that is your attitude, you aren't receiving anything from him. You know, how can you receive forgiveness for something that you can't even admit that you did wrong, and that you need forgiveness for? But if we admit that we need Jesus, that we are imperfect people, then we're perfectly positioned to receive his perfect gift. So what happens when someone thinks that they need to confess every single sin, every single day? This is why it's a legend, because when every new sin needs to be asked forgiveness for, you know, Jesus, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I messed up again. Then we're stuck in this spot where we're always relating to Jesus out of our guilt, and all we think about is our shame, and all we think about is what we did wrong, and if I already messed up today, I'm going to ask for forgiveness tonight. I might as well just keep on doing what I'm doing and ask for forgiveness all at once, and never actually relating to him because there's all this guilt and shame barrier in the way, keeping me stuck and focused on myself. And even, you know, imagine how impossible that would be. Every time you mess up, you know, on your deathbed, constantly confessing? Or what about accidental sins that you, maybe you hurt somebody and you didn't even know you did it, right? So maybe let's ask ourselves, is this making me run towards God or away from him? Is this pushing me towards relationship or away from him? Because the simple truth is I know he wants relationship with me, and if all I'm thinking about is my sins, I get further from him, not closer. And that's not a relationship at all. That's a transaction. Here I give you one confession, you give me one forgiveness. Two confessions, two forgiveness. It's a transaction. But Jesus already forgave all of our sins, past, present, and future, so if you admit you're not good enough to get it on your own and that you need his gift and you need relationship with him, then you can receive it. And that breaks the curse. Does that mean we never ever admit anything to anyone and we just say like, yes, I'm a sinner, but I don't apologize because I don't have to? No, if you wrong someone your spouse, a friend, a brother, it, it helps to bring things into the light and say, I'm sorry, I wronged you. Would you please forgive me? Let's heal this relationship. Let's get back together and be friends again. And it helps heal things. You bring stuff into the light and you say, I'm, I, I wronged you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. But again, bringing your stuff into the light, not other people's, because gossip never helps anybody and it actually just hurts everyone. So bringing your stuff into the light can help heal relationships if you wrong someone. And when you talk to Jesus... You can bring your stuff with Jesus into the light, but the gift is that you can do it to him without the guilt, but with freedom and joy and thankfulness. And you're actually saying, I messed up again, but I'm still a person, but thank you because I receive your help. And instead of focusing on what I did and how bad I feel about it, I get to focus on what you did and how much you love me and how you already paid for this. You knew I was going to do it and you died for me way before I ever even thought about it. And if you can't get righteousness on your own, if you can't earn it on your own, you have to receive this gift of righteousness, then how can we believe that we have to maintain it if we didn't earn it, if we didn't get it? You can't earn the gift of salvation, so how can we maintain the right to keep it? That keeps us out of relationship and focused on sin. Romans 6.14 says, sin can't tell you how to live After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. I love that verse. You're not living under that old tyranny any longer. He said, go and sin no more. You're living in the freedom of God. Uh, I proposed to my wife in February of 2017. It was a snowy, yeti kind of environment. Uh, We actually went up to Ithaca and went on a hike deep into the woods and I had a spot picked out right on the edge of a, a cliff and I had some friends go up and wrap some cool lights around some trees so it would be all like beautiful and this romantic moment and uh, the coffee that we were supposed to waste the time on before the proposal went way faster than I thought it would and the lights took way longer than I thought it would so I drove in circles around Ithaca for like 30 minutes pretending to be lost and then we got up there and we hiked through the, through the forest trying to avoid the yetis. I'm sure that we're in the trees. And I proposed, and actually I, I slipped like right near the edge of the cliff, and I put my hand down on the ground, but she swears that she caught me and saved my life. So <laughs> it depends on who you ask the story for. But when I said, will you marry me? She said, yes, I accept. I will marry you. And that's all we have to do to start a relationship. Now we've been married for four years, and we've started our relationship when we got married because she said, I do, and I said, I do. And that was the beginning of a relationship. It was just an acceptance of getting into a relationship, and that's all we have to do to start this relationship with Jesus. We have to accept. Because of our last urban legend, I want to look at really quick as we close, the last urban legend I want to talk about is the problem of sin. The problem of sin. Sin is not a problem, people of hope. You're not living under that old tyranny any longer. Sin was a problem. It was a huge problem. But now you're living in the freedom of God. And all he has ever wanted is to be in relationship with you. He, he likes you. He, Jesus loves you. Everybody knows that. But did you know Jesus likes you? He likes who you are. He made you on purpose. He said, I have something for you, and I love you. I want to get to know you. Focusing on our sin always only pulls us away not closer. So the bigger problem than sin, which isn't a problem, it's been solved, is religion. Because the simple truth is God wants relationship with you. And yes, God hates sin because he loves you and sin hurts us. There's consequences in this natural world to sin, but there's a better way. And he says, I want to love you. And religion is the thing that starts these urban legends. It's the thing that starts like the curse of the unpardonable sin or the, am I fit for communion? Have I examined myself enough? Religion starts the things like, do I have unconfessed sin in my life? If I died right now, would there be anything I forgot to say to Jesus? Because the solution to all of those urban legends in this religion lens is based in your power and what you can do. It's based in your introspection or weighing yourself on your scales of immorality or long confession lists of sin and transactions with Jesus. It's all stuff that we do, and how much of that includes God? It's those things that we do, and it's religion that says, I don't need your gift. I can do it all by myself. If I confess enough, then you'll forgive me enough. It's in my power. But people hope you are already saved. You have not committed the unpardonable sin. So when we do sin, what do we do? We run towards God, not away from him. Like the prodigal son, we say, I messed up. I'm not perfect. I receive your gift. I am perfectly in position to need you, Jesus. So as a little kid in the basement, I'll say, go take communion. Be in relationship with God and the people. Receive his blood that paid for the sins that you're so afraid of. Receive the gift with nothing holding you back from being in relationship with Jesus. He just wants to spend time with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants to love you and to be loved by you. He wants to get to know you and for you to get to know Him. It's a relationship. Don't overcomplicate relationship with Jesus. And it sounds good now, but what about later? You know, when the doubt creeps in and you start thinking about all the things that you've done. I believe God wants relationship with me, but I also believe a little bit that there's things that keep me from relationship with Him. You know, Noah doesn't know about this thing or that thing or what about this case You know, they're my own unpardonable sins that I carry around, right? Don't allow mixture like that. He either has or he hasn't. He has forgiven you or he hasn't forgiven you. It's the truth. And where that logic and that truth meet is where you start to believe and say, yes, I believe it all the way. I have to believe it all the way because there can't be any mixture to this truth because it doesn't make sense. It's too good to believe, but it's true. And if God has ever had any sort of relationship with you, then he has already forgiven all your sins because it wouldn't be possible for him to have that bit of relationship with you. And when you really see Jesus for who he is like this, in this light of I want you, no matter what, everything is taken care of. Be free from the sin. You don't have to do anything to pay for it, to get back to me. You can't re-earn your righteousness. It changes your life, and that's why the enemy wants you to keep from believing this. and starting a relationship with Jesus without any guilt in the back of your mind, but just free to relate to him because he took care of it just so that you could be together. It's like if someone paid to get you out of prison, right? You all know you can't buy your way out of prison, but you're if you're in a jail, guilty for something that you know you committed, and somebody came along and paid enough money somehow to get you out of jail it's like a lot a lot of money and you get out of jail and they say i actually have a, a fresh clothes for you i put a i gave a bank account in your name with money that you didn't earn access to people and things that you could never have access to and all you ever did was think about how you really deserve to be in that cell you would never get to know the person who got you out of it and how backwards is that how stuck is that When you have a life of freedom handed to you, take it, people of hope.